This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello, and welcome to the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. I am Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and today our guest is Matt Rybicki from ForgeDeck, and he and Don will be discussing a brand new technology now offered by Innovator, known as Friction Forge Bonding. So let's hear what they have to say. All right, so today we're here with uh, Matt Rybicki from ForgeTech, and we're going to introduce uh, our audience to um, a new technology called Forge Bonding. So Matt, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you having why don't, me here. Uh, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, who's ForgeTech? Well, uh, ForgeTech is an industrial technology company, um, and we have a, a technology for joining metals without any sparks or flames. Um, it allows us to go into chemical plants and refineries and perform work without being a hazard. Um, we've been around since uh, 2010. We, we incorporated that year. It was the, the year that our first patent issued. And we've got 18 patents now that have issued uh, some foreign, uh, some U.S. And uh, <clears throat> we continue to build our patent portfolio and we continue to refine our technology. So we've been around uh, quite a few years. Uh, the the uh, technology was actually invented um, before we incorporated uh, back in the early 2000s. And the inventor of the technology still works for our company um, and continues to move the technology forward. And now, uh, who was that? Have I met him? Uh, Mike Miller. Yes, he was. Okay, actually, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's Mike. Mike was up uh, with our team uh, training us just a few weeks ago. That's great. Yeah, I, I thought that Mike had a lot to do with uh, inventing the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so your business has been, uh, you know, incorporated as a business with patents since uh, since 2009. Um, but this was a technology that was um, was developing long before that with Mike. Is that right? That's right. Uh, he was uh, actually developing it in his garage over uh, a, a decade or two. Uh, right. Just was <clears throat> Mike actually started in the leak sealing industry, and he used to be up on tank roofs uh, drilling and tapping uh, to put plates down and stop leaks and and trying to repair valves with drill and tap. And he realized there's got to be a better way. So okay. he in his after hours and, and weekends, he, he slowly uh, developed the technology through funding of his father in his garage. And uh, as the technology came to fruition um, and, and became um, where he felt it was comfortable bringing it to the market, um, the company took in a round of funding in 2010. Um, and I joined the board of directors at that time. And uh, we continued to develop the technology and, and build the market since then. Awesome. So the technology we're talking about in sort of in aggregate is something called friction bonding, right? Uh, well, we term it forge bonding and that's our marketing for, for, Sorry, forge bonding, right. Sorry, I, I confuse those two uh, terminologies between friction forge bonding and forge bonding. So you right. call it in the marketplace forge bonding. Okay. That, yes, uh, we, we have actually evolved our marketing uh, term for, for what the uh, process is. Um, and actually it's, it's uh, actually evolved from a technology called friction welding that's been around since the uh, 1950s. And mm-hmm. it's actually currently used in manufacturing today, friction welding is. 
Uh, it's used in automotive uh, and aerospace industries and, and many others. Um, but but the when it's used in manufacturing, it's usually a, a large floor standing piece of equipment. It can be used in a in a manufacturing facility. It's not portable. It can't be. You know, you have to bring the work to to the uh, forge bonding machine rather than the forge bonding machine to the to the the client. Right. Um, so, so you've taken you've taken some large uh, large stationary technology and made it portable so you could take it into process facilities and and then use a variety of applications that you've developed with that portable technology, right? That's right. There's actually two changes or, or improvements we made to friction welding. Number one is we did make it portable, like you said, so that we could bring it uh, into these facilities where the work needs to be done. Uh, secondly, we minimize the thermal energy required to, to join the two metals together. And right. so... And so we term it forge bonding because we're never reaching the molten temperatures that typical welding processes use. We're only bringing the metal to a forging temperature and under pressure and rotation, we drive those two metals together. Okay. So just describe uh, in, uh, in as many words as you need uh, for uh, anyone who's listening, exactly what forge bonding is then. What, what is it in the most layman terms in terms of what you're doing? Okay. Um, well, we take a, a 5 16 inch stud. I think you can probably see that okay here. Mm -hmm. a stainless steel stud, and we apply a pressure to it, and then we rotate it for a few seconds. And after that rotation and pressure, we end up with a, a stud bonded to a piece of steel like this. And it's a, it's a permanent bond. Um, it takes – the actual bond is actually stronger than either of the two metals that are um, – involved in the process and we can bond uh, different types of, of metals <coughs> and materials. Um, but it's, it's basically pressure and rotation that drives the two metals together. Um, happens in about three seconds. Um, we've qualified uh, quite a few uh, various, quite a few different metals for forge bonding. Some are stainless steel, some are carbon steels. And uh, customers uh, bring us regularly different metals that we, we need to qualify before we actually perform work. So the forge bonding process is, you know, for all of us Boy Scouts out there, it's like uh, when we took uh, the one stick and spun it really fast against the wood to create some friction to uh, create a fire, except we're doing this with, uh, with uh, high strength materials, uh, stainless and carbon steel. That's a, that's a good analogy. Uh, under that pressure and rotation, there's, a small amount of thermal energy that's generated at that interface where the rotation is, is occurring and it does soften the two metals to a clay-like consistency and under the pressure and that rotation those two metals get driven together um yeah that's that's awesome kind of well in a nutshell okay so you know what are the uh the customer applications and and the uh economic conditions that are best suited for uh for forge bonding then like where is a customer best going to uh, be able to utilize this and get value from it. Right. Um, so that's a good question. Um, and it's, it's really where our value comes in. Our technology is uh, best suited for um, situations where you can't get a hot work permit. That's number mm -hmm. one, because um, welding is an alternative if you can get a hot work permit. But what, what our value is, is we can come into a hazardous or flammable environment and perform retrofits or repairs without creating uh, an ignition source. Um, so the other situation that's very well suited for forge bonding is if you have a tank with a liner on it, mm -hmm. for instance, or you have a pipe that has been heat treated 
the amount of thermal energy we generate is not enough to destroy the liner on that tank or to take the heat treating out of the, the piping. Okay. Um, so there's, there's, there's a number of advantages. Also, uh, we have a number of customers who would like to install, who are, who are trying to upgrade the safety in their facilities, like install handrails or fall protection or fire suppression, uh, foam injection nozzles. And they can't do it unless they take their, their uh, units, their, their process lines down. Um, and so we can perform work while their process lines remain up and running. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, your, uh, the kinds of applications that you're seeing traditionally, you're repairing tanks, um, large storage tanks, what, uh, tank roofs, sidewall corrosion issues. You're also doing uh, a variety of handrails and other uh, structural fixtures um, in both in tank farms and in process facilities. That's right. We work in refineries uh, and then midstream terminals, uh, tank farms, like you said. Um, those are the, the two primary areas. We've done uh, quite a bit of work in chemical plants. In fact, we have a big job starting next week to install handrails in a second chemical plant. Um, and uh, we've done a, a little bit of work in the energy sector as well. But primarily, it's uh, oil refineries and, and uh, terminals. So how do, how do clients traditionally do this work uh, before um, they were introduced to uh, forge bonding and how forge bonding solves that? Like, what, what were the traditional methods before, uh, before this technology? Uh, well, the, the primary method, and, and I would have to say uh, for customers that don't know about it, it's, it's still their primary method, is they take the tank out of service. Um, and that's a, extremely expensive, especially on the larger tanks. Uh, some of these tanks are, um, their diameter is larger than the length of a football field. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're massive in size and it costs millions of dollars to take them out of service. So we've saved quite a few customers from having to take their tanks out of service uh, to perform mm -hmm. repairs. Um, there's another um, older method, which is using polymers to stop leaks. And polymers have their place and in some situations they work uh, they work very well, uh, and we fill that gap between where polymers uh, do not work and where they can't get a hot work permit uh, uh, and, and are forced to take a tank out of service. So that by keeping the tank in service, we save them um, very large amounts of money. Right. So, you know, taking a tank out of service is not simply draining it. Uh, it's, it's draining it. It's cleaning it. It's degassing it. Uh, and it's also the loss production time that that tank has in terms of revenue for clients. I mean, there's, there's a lot of economic conditions that uh, make that a very expensive endeavor that ends up effectively being a large capital project or at least a very big chunk of a maintenance budget, right? That's right. The, uh, the, in fact, some, some of our customers fail to, to look at that lost production or it's hard to quantify because um, it doesn't fall on the maintenance budget. And right. so... <clears throat> So frequently, um, we're, we're having to show them the real value that we're bringing, which, which sometimes that loss of production is the greatest part of the, the expense they're going to incur by taking a tank out of service. Okay. What about inside of a process facility where it's not a, you know, it's not a hundreds of thousands of barrels tank, but you're doing uh, forge bonding inside of a operating refinery uh, could be, you know, it's just in the plant. So there, uh, I guess you're eliminating hot work is a, is a big uh, element of, of this in addition to the ability to 
work on components from a heat treatment standpoint or from a flammability standpoint. How do customers see the elimination of hot work in terms of the value that, uh, that this brings? Well, that's huge. Um, first of all, eliminating hot work allows them to do work that they couldn't do before. And second of all, everyone knows that reducing hot work improves safety. And the right. industry is becoming more and more safety conscious as time moves forward. And uh, so that's what uh, additional value that, again, is hard to put into dollars, but bringing safety to a chemical plant or refinery is uh, huge. Right. In the way it's cost. Yeah, I mean, we do, uh, you know, at Innovator, we, we do other types of wellless uh, piping connections uh, with our wellless uh, piping, wellless flange services. And what we find um, is, you know, the, the cost of, of hot work, um, the indirect cost associated with the hot work portion, it isn't actually doing the physical work, is about, you know, anywhere from five to 10 times more than, than the actual work being performed. So, you know, a lot of the time on maintenance budgets, if it's a five or $10,000 task in terms of the supervision and craft, the materials going into actually performing the actual repair, um, it can be 25 to 50 or even $100,000 in planning and operators and uh, hot work safety meetings with the entire crew. You know, there's a huge indirect cost that a lot of people who are actually executing the work don't really quantify into the budget. And often that actually becomes part of, you know, it becomes part of overhead, but it's an awful lot of people in an awful lot of meetings doing gas testing and procedures and job hazard analysis and a whole range of things that are not directly seen when you're performing the tasks. That's right. And I yeah. assume it's the same, it's the same benefit um, when, uh, when you're eliminating that with, with forged bonding is, is changing the, the level of, um, of activities that have to happen before the work. Right. That, in fact, that's one of the, the uh, challenges we face um, when selling our, our uh, technology to our customers is, um, is uh, convincing them that, uh, that convincing them to change their standard operating procedure. I guess that's the best right. way to say it. Because they're, they're ingrained. They've been doing this for, for since the beginning. They have these standard operating procedures. And when there's something that doesn't fit into that, it's, it, it, it takes extra work on their end to um, to bring in a new process. And it can sure. happen, but it just takes some time to, to, to work your way in. And they, they love it once they've got it. But it's, uh, it's basically changing the mindset of the industry that they, they don't necessarily have to take their service lines down in order to repair or install things. Um, right. We have a, a chemical plant that we're working on in the Houston area between two of their facilities. And <clears throat> we're installing handrails on um, over 100 tanks between those two facilities. Um, and they've tried to install these handrails during turnarounds. Um, but what they found is that during a turnaround, everybody's focused on getting the process line back up and running because of the cost of that lost production. And right. so they never have time. They've tried three times to install handrails during turnarounds and they, they never could get it done. So they called us in and now we're putting up those handrails on um, while they're in service. Because it's not critical task work during the, the maintenance schedule. So it ends up being tasks that get deferred potentially time and time again uh, as a result. Right. And they just right. decided we're never going to get these handrails on unless we, we put them on while, they're, while it's in service. Right. Do it, do it during regular production and try to eliminate the hot work and do it during a, a different cycle because you don't need the plant shut down to do any type of forged bonding. 
where the applications are right. Right. Exactly. Okay. There must have been a lot of uh, research and development and testing gone into forged bonding. Can you kind of walk us through the journey uh, of, of the kinds of testing and the kinds of R&D uh, that you've had to do over a long period of time to, to get the technology where you have it today? Sure, sure. And a lot of that happened in the garage shop of, uh, of, our, of our, one of our founders and the inventor. And I wasn't right. there for that, but he spent a lot of time and effort um, developing the, the bonding process. Um, and then in 2010, uh, when we brought in our first round of funding, we hired an engineer out of NASA, a welding engineer, who could qualify the, the bond and, and the, uh, the stud bond and uh, put together a procedure for that stud bond. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the beginning of when we had, we had a marketable product, when we, when we could show a uh, welding procedure and a, uh, quali a procedural qualification record. That's required. So, and that was so that was getting the quality. Then we had the issue of the backside temperature because everybody's concerned about how much thermal energy is generated in this bonding process and how much of it makes it to the backside of the, the piece of the backside of that piece of metal. When you're bonding the stud on top, how much of it is making it back here? And uh, so we we spent a year and a half developing a test. Um, and uh, performing the test and taking the data. And then we wrote a paper um, that, uh, and we published it with the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. And uh, it, it, it shows the means that we took the data, how we took it, our, our test setup, um, what the data showed, and then uh, comes to some conclusions. And what we, what we demonstrate is that we have a factor of safety of two on that max side temperature. So developing the quality of the weld, uh, there was a great deal of effort uh, put into that and also making it repeatable. So every stud goes down exactly like the other stud. Um, and so we have a forged bonding machine that has a control box that, that takes the human. It's not an art form like, uh, like a TIG or MIG welding where you're relying on the skill of, an, of a welder. Uh, we've, we set it up so that there's all the technician has to do is prepare the worksite and, um, and, and set up the machine. And then it's a matter of a push of a button for him to perform a bond. And so it right. takes the human error out of it and allows us to, um, to put down studs in a very repeatable fashion. That was another part of the development. So it's almost like um, uh, it's automated forged bonding. Like, exactly. you know, in a similar way that people would think about automatic welding versus, versus stick or, uh, or TIG or MIG. Uh, people understand automatic welding is a much more quality bond. It takes the human... Uh, error element out of the out of the task as much as possible but your your forge bonding equipment effectively eliminates all that it's a setup and uh, and push the button to execute uh, approach to uh, to bonding these studs correct yes that's that's exactly right that's fantastic um, right yes the the time is set by a pneumatic timer by the way there's no electricity or electronics involved in our process it's purely air driven so you can kind of mm -hmm. you, you can actually say we weld with air um, right. it's, a, it's a very safe process and uh, very repeatable, uh, very well controlled. It's a controlled energy source. And it allows us to, to what, because you say, might say, well, I don't need any studs today. You know, it's, <laughs> what, what am I going to do with that? Well, there's very, very many applications and our customers keep bringing us new ones. Uh, one of the first was to install repair plates on, on tanks. Uh, as you mentioned, the roofs and, and the, uh, the tank shells or walls. But we can also put plates on, on the tank bottoms. If, if you can't get a hot work permit to, to weld a lap plate on a tank bottom, we can come in and, 
install a lap plate without welding. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I guess getting back to your earlier comment, it's a it's a very highly highly controlled process. Right. And you're using it for plates. You're using it for shell sides, like the side of a tank that has corrosion. Could be, could even the tank could be corroding and even potentially leaking. Um, uh, you're doing lap plates. You're doing structural steel effectively with like fall arrest anchor points or handrails. Uh, what other type? Are you doing steer mounts as well? Is that another application, or am I overstepping there? No, we have installed uh, stair uh, pedestals for stairs that can be added. We had a, a tank in Texas that the uh, there was crevice corrosion on the well that was attaching the stair tread to the side of the tank, and right. it had corroded all the way through and was leaking naphtha. And so they lowered the level of the naphtha below the um, below the defects so that we could work without it, it leaking. Although we can perform work on the side of a tank if it is leaking, with we'll just use polymers as a temporary leak stop. And then we'll we'll work in a clean you know a dry area on the outside of the tank while we uh, install our plate. But we, yes, we had to design a repair that uh, in Texas that would withstand the hydrostatic pressure of the naphtha in that tank when it's full, but also support the um, the OSHA required weight bearing uh, for a stair tread. Okay. Right. Now, without uh, going you know, or sort of divulging any uh, any uh, proprietary. Um, things you're developing, where, where do you see taking the technology with new applications to benefit clients over the coming years? Um, well, there's, uh, there's uh, fire suppression that I mentioned earlier, cooling rings on tanks. Uh, we have a uh, quote out in the Middle East for installing cooling rings on some tanks at an oil okay. field. Um, and uh, foam suppression, foam fire suppression um, uh, is another one. Um, and as I mentioned, we've done uh, stairs before. Also, we can hang ladders um mm -hmm. on on sides of tanks uh, we have a customer that had uh, their stair their stairway corroded um uh, corrosion is uh, constantly working against you when, it, when you're in a chemical plant or refinery it's all steel and uh and the uh, weather gets to it so the uh, stairway was uh was crumbling and they the, the uh, workers were afraid to walk up the stairs so they wanted to either uh, for us to replace the stairs or to hang ladders and there's a lot of those situations out in the industry um uh, so we can also, we've applied our technology, the forge binding technology to, uh, to an improved method of repairing leaking valves. Um, so it basically replaces drill and tap. So we, right. we, instead of bonding a stud to a plate, we're bonding a, an injection fitting to a valve up near the uh, packing gland. And so that's an, another technology um, that's, that we have available. And it's safer uh, and far higher quality than, than drill and tap. Um, so, so if you, I, you know, I mean, we do tons and tons of, of drill and tap um, leak repair work. If you used a forged bond leak repair injection valve, then, you know, that's a high quality bond. It's no longer considered a fugitive emissions leak point. Um, customers could leave that in service, right? I mean, they wouldn't need to necessarily have to do a more permanent repair or swap that valve out or change that, uh, uh, that injection valve out like they would with, uh, with a drill and tap injection valve, as long as, uh, you know, depending on the sealant that's used, obviously. That's right. The, uh, um, we do have customers that, that are, have told us they're not going to use drill and tap anymore. They're just going to use forged bonding because 
it allows them to take the valve off their replacement list. Right. Okay. Drill and tap valve, you're going to put it on your replacement list because you've degraded the asset by performing the drill and tap. With forged right. bonding, we've actually enhanced the asset because you now have a, a maintenance platform for re-injecting that valve if it starts leaking again. Right. And it effectively becomes an integral part of the valve as opposed to uh, a repair component. Exactly. Yes. Right. And uh, yes, uh, the uh, our, our fittings are far stronger than a drill and tap fitting, less likely to break off or leak because because uh, when you're when you're drilling and tapping, you only have a few threads holding the injection fitting onto the valve at right. best. Um, yes, and then there's a safety, there's a dangerous safety step in the drill and tap process, which um, we've, we've actually been in discussions uh, with the EPA about including um, drilling, uh, forged bonding as an alternative uh, first attempt for drill and tap on valves um, right. or for, for leak stopping of, of valves. Yeah, depending on the pressure, uh, of what you're drilling and tapping into. I mean, you you obviously have the the uh, the safety component while you're drilling just to tap the hole before you even thread in the injection valve. But then you also have the uh, the uh, ex potential exposure once the technician uh, has the injection valve installed and he has to punch through to break you know through that those la the, the last components of that stuffing box to get access into the uh, into the valve wall to get into the stuffing box. So, you know, often, you know, that requires a high pressure back packing gland or some other uh, way to, to, to leak components. So, um, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of ways to make that a more uh, enhanced process. And I think the other thing, depending on how you approach it is, and you mentioned the EPA and first attempt, there's a whole element of drill and tap when you punch through that you're actually creating a leak point um, and releasing some potential emissions before you seal it because of, of that, uh, that punch-through event, right? Right, and, and we actually have a patented uh, injection kit for, um, for uh, um, injecting the valve once we uh, bond the fitting to the valve. It allows us to simultaneously drill and inject at the same time. So the moment we break through that valve uh, bonnet into the packing gland where the, the sealant is following it, at a slightly higher pressure than what's inside the valve. And then we can back the drill bit out and keep keep pumping. So we call it a zero emission injection kit. Um, so right. it does offer some an additional advantage over the drill and tap. Nice, okay. Let's dive into um, uh, some frequently asked questions that you often hear from clients as they're looking at exploring, considering forge bonding. Uh, you know, and the first one uh, comes to mind is you know, how strong are the studs? Hmm. Yeah, we, we do get that question a lot. And uh, so our, our studs are uh, qualified to ASME uh, Section 9. Uh, this is kind of a, a little mock-up we have that, uh, that we uh, show customers that uh, we have to pass a bend test, which is what you see here. You have to bend the stud over and straighten it back out without it breaking off. Uh, this is a torque test where we put a stack of washers on it and a nut, and then we torque it until something gives. And we only have to pass eight foot pounds, actually a very easy test. These break off typically about 45 foot pounds. But notice the bond is not breaking in either one of these. It's the right. stud breaks off here. And, and if we take a hydraulic uh, press and we, uh, we uh, pull, we bond a stud and then we pull it, it'll, it'll fail at about 5,000 pounds of, of uh, force. And it actually takes out a piece of the base metal rather than, than uh, breaking the stud or uh, breaking the bond. So the bond is actually stronger than either of the two metals. 
Um, so uh, in this case, the, the base metal actually pulled out of the, uh, of right. the base metal. Got it. Okay. Um, how long does it take to, to bond a, to bond a stuff? Like what's the, what's the length of time? Uh, well, most of the time is spent uh, during setup, uh, getting onto the tank roof, setting up the equipment. Um, the actual bond itself takes about three seconds. That, that, that stud is spinning for three seconds and that's mm -hmm. it. Um, but you have to, then once you're up and you're, you're set up and running, you have to index uh, your machine from, from a stud to stud. So that takes a few minutes. And we, we estimate on a, on a good day, um, we'll put down 60 studs in a day, um, depending on the, the conditions. It can, you know, if we have to work in breathing air, that typically uh, takes longer close to close the process down. Yeah. But uh, yeah, 60 so on a on a uh, on a handrail, you're talking what six or eight studs per mount? Is that uh, sort of uh, the usually it's four to six studs? Yeah, four on six the roof mount and six on the wall mount. So you could be mounting eight to ten brackets a day. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. And how about on the uh, on the plate side of things? If you're if you're on a tank and you've got multiple. Uh, multiple locations where you need to put down repair plates. What's the typical size of a plate? How many studs are in there? And uh, how many plates can you typically do in a eight to 10 hour shift? Right, so uh, yeah, the most common size of a plate is, uh, is a, we call it the 12 volt plate. Uh, we have an eight bolt plate. Uh, we can even do a four bolt plate, but we don't put those down very often. In fact, it's probably been, I can count them on one hand as a few, the, 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 the number we put down of those. Uh, but an eight bolt, twelve bolt plate, and then we put down uh, the largest plate we put down is eight and a half feet by three and a half feet. So we had 128 studs on that plate. So it varies uh, widely, and that one took us like two days just to put the, the studs down. To, yeah, right. and then then you have to install the plate after that. Um, so the smaller plates, uh, if you're using the eight bolt plates, you know you can put uh, half a dozen of those down in a day. Um, yeah, because yeah, the, and it really what what determines the the rate of application is um, frequently obstructions and of course weather delays um, working and breathing air but obstructions can really slow the process down uh, we commonly because the the rolling ladder on an external floating tank roof uh, is a heavy spot tends to collect water and chemicals so we there's a lot of failures that occur under that rolling ladder and so there's you have to work around that rolling ladder. Um, in some situations, we've actually cut the rolling ladder rail. We've cut a segment out of it so that we could work, and then we reattach it when we're done with bolting. Okay. Um, so, so it's yeah, that's it's uh, uh, every situation is different. Um, it's rare that well, maybe half the plates or less than half are are out in the open on a tank roof where there's no obstacles. Usually, they the problems occur where you have complicated weld joints um, and crevice corrosion creeps in, or like I said, a heavy spot on a roof where the rolling ladder is. But putting down four, six, eight repair plates, uh, and the plant is, uh, the sorry, the tank as an example, is is in production. So, you know, the, the impact is is minimal uh, because you're not, you know, you're, you, you don't have a hot work issue. The tank doesn't have to be drained or taken out of service. So if whether you're there for two days or eight days putting down repair plates, uh, you know, the comparison in terms of value, in terms of safety, productivity, cost effectiveness for, for the client is astronomical compared to, you know, the potentially millions of dollars um, of having to do this traditionally. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, 
so what kinds of materials are we talking about when you're uh, when you're laying down studs and uh, injection valves and those sorts of things? What are you working on and what are you bonding to? Uh, most of our work is on carbon steel uh, down south. Uh, it's uh, 836 up north. There's a few different varieties of steel they use for the colder weather. Um, uh, so it's typically uh, carbon steel and our stud is made out of a, a 304 um, uh, stainless steel, which is our most, we probably put probably 95 or 98 percent of the studs we put down as a 5 16 inch 304 stainless steel stud that you see here. Um, so um, that it, it's just it, it performs a beautiful bond. It's very strong um, and we like it. Uh, the, the stainless steel is uh, very uh, immune to the elements uh, as far as corrosion goes. So it, it makes for a very long lasting repair. And the, the plates, uh, they're uh, typically stainless steel, but depending on uh, material compatibility, we might go with a carbon steel. Um, and then and then just like uh, the tanks are made of different carbon steels, we'll, we'll uh, typically we like to use the, the type of carbon steel that the tank's made of. Um, and then we, uh, for that plate to seal against the leak, we need to use a, uh, typically we use a polymer and then we lay a gasket over the polymer and the polymer is there to um, give us a, a, a flat surface so that the gasket has has a flat surface to seal against. So right. the polymer fills pits and it helps us planarize if we're crossing a lap joint, which is very common, um, and uh, gives gives that gasket a nice uh, place to seat. And uh, nuts and washers, they're stainless steel just like the stud. Okay. And then it's uh, everything is torqued to spec. That's right. Yeah. Torqued in sequence. Uh, it's kind of like torquing uh, the bolt pattern on your, on your uh, truck or, or car. Yeah. Yeah, all, yeah. We just walk our way around and slowly bring it down. I mean, effectively yeah. you're creating a gasket, a joint and then torquing it to spec. I mean, That's no exactly different right. than a client would with a flange joint, right? Exactly. That's, that's right. right. Okay. And, and everything is engineered that we, that we do. Um, we, uh, we have engineering that backs up um, every repair, every installation we do to make sure that it's uh, of quality um, and uh, it's going to provide the safety if it's a safety device and it's going to going to be a long lasting repair if it's a, if it's a leak repair. Right. So, uh, you know, what prevents a technician from either uh, over or under bonding the stud? Um, well, as we discussed earlier, the machine that performs the bonding, um, eliminates the need to have a highly skilled welder. Um, it's the, the machine has a timer on it. Um, there's gauges to monitor pressures and, and vacuums during the bonding process. So once the, once the machine is set up on the work site, on the work surface, uh, it's a matter of pushing a button and there's a pneumatic timer that counts down three seconds. And, and when the bond's done, it automatically shuts it off. Um, there's, uh, there's also a redundant timer. Um, everybody likes redundancy when it comes to safety. So the time, if one timer fails, the other timers a backup and shuts it off. Uh, so, and there's other safety features that are built into the machine as well. Okay. Yeah. Again, it just comes back to, you know, the, the language that I hear is, you know, automatic stud welding, yeah. right? It's, uh, and cold work. <laughs> um, so customers are thinking about doing this using the using forge bonding you know what does it typically cost to uh to install a repair plate well when i'm asked that question i typically uh, give the answer that it's going to cost a lot less than taking that tank out of service uh, in fact right. if it's not a small fraction of that <laughs> i'll be surprised um now of course when the tank gets smaller if you're talking about a you know 10 foot diameter tank it's 
that, and it's got a light hydrocarbon in it or something that's easy to wash out, it, it might be uh, better just to, to take it out of service and weld it. But uh, once the tanks start getting large, uh, a lot of the tanks we work on are crude oil. They have three feet of sludge in the bottom, and uh, it's, this tank is the size of a football field, and, and uh, taking that out of service is a, is a whole other ballgame. And that's where our, our value comes in. Uh, uh, let's talk about backside temperature uh, when bonding. You know, uh, what is the backside temperature? Uh, and I'm sure every customer asks this because they uh, they hear they hear friction, they hear forge bonding. You know, somewhere in there, they're going to perceive it as welding. What's the uh, what are we talking about in terms of backside temperatures? Okay, yeah. So during the bonding uh, process, while this stud is going down. Um, the, uh, there is uh, thermal energy generated at the top, and during the process, there's a small um, device that the machine itself is actually covering the stud during the bonding process. You can't see the stud being bonded, and we purge that top side with argon gas during the bonding process, so that, that guarantees the safety on the top, but it's the backside that, that everybody's concerned about because if you're on a floating tank roof, you can't argon purge the backside of that tank, so this is a, I'm glad you brought this question up. Um, so the backside temperatures, uh, I'll just say right up front that we, we exceed the auto ignition temperature of uh, most hydrocarbons that we uh, bond on top of. Um, but due to a fact that is, um, is presented in API recommended practice 2216 that the, the, uh, if the thermal energy, the thermal footprint that's the hydrocarbons exposed to is small enough that it takes a much higher temperature to cause that uh, hydrocarbon to ignite. And the same thing with time. Um, auto ignition temperature is actually measured uh, over a 10 second interval, um, a, sorry, a 10 minute interval, 600 seconds. And our bonding process is only three seconds. So it's a small fraction of, of the uh, time duration. And API 2216 also points out that for very short, um, exposure to thermal energy, it takes a much higher temperature to cause ignition. And it's those two factors that we're using in this bonding process to ensure the safety. In fact, the characterization we did and, and uh, the paper that's uh, the American Institute of Chemical Engineer paper uh, points out um, and, and discloses the data that we collected. And it shows that we have a factor of two safety margin or greater for um, the, I think, 11 or 12 hydrocarbons that we've tested to date. Right. Now, you've, you've, uh, uh, done a lot of testing with the quality. You've done a lot of testing with the uh, auto ignition uh, circumstances, um, and you've spent a lot of time with you know pretty large owner clients who have uh, e you know either accepted or uh, acknowledged um, this repair as effectively a uh, a, a cold work you know approved process. Let's talk about how long these plates last. Well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We, uh, we have one customer who, uh, in fact, it's the largest number of plates we put down was on a tank in Louisiana. Um, we put 41 plates down on a tank. It actually was during an API 653 turnaround, which is kind of interesting because most of our work is performed while, um, while the tanks are in service. This one was out of service, going through a turnaround, and the, the tank roof was landed, no product, but they were still picking up traces of benzene, and so they couldn't get a hot work permit to weld on the surface, on the, on the top of the, the floating roof. Um, and they, they had blasted the roof, it was already primed, um, and they found uh, five 
six through holes and there were 35 thinned areas that they wanted plates put over it, but again, they couldn't do it using welding. So they hired us to come in and we put 41 plates down on the tank roof to uh, bring it back into um, like new condition. And they were expecting, they are expecting those plates to last for 20 years. And that was back, I believe in 2015 when we did that. 41 plates. 41 plates. Was there any of the roof left besides plate? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the plates, a lot of them were small plates, uh, but there were various sizes up to about three feet on a side. Uh, I remember actually seeing a picture of that. uh, and I, I think I actually posted it on social media and, and asked uh, a lot of my connections to guess how many plates were on that picture. Um, yeah. yeah, that's it, uh, that's the one. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, is uh, galvanic corrosion an issue? Um, galvanic corrosion is not an issue um, because you do have dissimilar metals. It's a, it's a valid concern. Um, but we've talked to uh, corrosion experts and We've done uh, quite a bit of research on it. It turns out that if the surface area of the stainless steel to the carbon steel that it's attached to is small, if the ratio of the surface areas is small, then galvanic corrosion is not an issue. If we were putting a carbon steel stud on a stainless steel base material or a stainless steel tank, that stud would, would be gone very quickly. Uh, right. But when it's reversed, there's, uh, there's little to no effect from galvanic corrosion. Um, but the other thing is when we put the plates down, we, we uh, encapsulate the, the joint between the tank roof or the tank wall and the stud with the polymer. So it, it, uh, the area is, is, is void of any electrolytes. And that's, a, that's one of the three components that's necessary for uh, galvanic corrosion. So basically, we've eliminated even though that's not necessary. Okay. Um, so how much pressure... Uh, can these uh, repairs sustain? Um, we've completed a couple months ago, we completed our highest pressure uh, repair at 150 PSI. Um, we've done a 99 PSI tower. We've done some, some lower pressures, a uh, 60 PSI uh, condensate drum. Um, and uh, we have tested it in our shop up to a thousand PSI um, on a mm-hmm. piece of piping just to, to demonstrate the amount of uh, pressure we could withstand and we let it sit for two weeks and no issue. We haven't actually performed a work at that pressure, but um, we know that it's capable of that. And these are the, the plate repairs, because obviously uh, if you're doing structural repairs, it's all about uh, its load-bearing capability. Um, what about uh, with your injection valve uh, technology? Have you, have you got any uh, pressure rating or guidelines there? Um, I don't have a, a high number on, on the, uh, we have actually performed uh, a 2000 PSI um, um, valve, um, it was basically a simulation in our shop to find out what the maximum pressure uh, that we could handle was. And we were able to drill and tap uh, a 2000 PSI vessel, um, but we haven't performed that in the field. I'm not sure that the, the highest pressure we put down in the field. Okay. Um, on the handrail side, um, obviously handrails are, gu- are guided by a variety of, of safety regulations. Um, what, uh, what does uh, OSHA have to say about this? I mean, in Canada, it's OHS and the regulations are, are, are provincial, but you're, uh, you're generally dealing with U.S. Uh, OSHA regulations. And how does this comply with, uh, with that? 
Uh, well, OSHA, the, the general rule, and there's a lot of detailed rules, but the bottom line is if you can, can withstand uh, 200 pounds of force in any direction on your handrail, then that's, that'll, you know, other, you know, it gets a little more complicated when you have stairs involved. Um, but if you're just on a tank roof with a handrail, it has to stand, withstand one, 200 PSI of force in any direction. And so we, we run, uh, we, we use FEA modeling for our engineering primarily. There are some hand calculations, but uh, when, if you receive an engineering package uh, with Forgetech's name on it, it typically is a finite element analysis result with Von Mises stress diagrams and a discussion about it. Um, uh, the, the older, uh, before FEA analysis was commonplace, uh, typically there were hand calculations used for, uh, in, that were used in the engineering packages. Um, um, but all of everything is engineered, even the handrails we've put together, a, a, a finite element analysis model of a handrail to prove that it'll withstand those forces. Okay. I don't know what the, uh, I haven't looked up what the regulations for handrails are in Canada yet, but I'm going to have to, uh, do my homework on that, uh, as we, uh, as we start to offer this for clients. But, uh, the fact that it's fully engineered and it comes with an FEA package should give, uh, every customer confidence that uh, they're going to be getting high quality bonds and, um, and meeting their requirements. Exactly. Now this is new technology and most people are going to be thinking and, you know, reading and or listening or watching what we're talking about and trying to get their head around. And most people will have this from a mindset of how they do things today. So, you know, what, what are some things that customers should be thinking about asking about this technology, asking about their situation, but are not, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not in, they're not really looking at it that way yet. Like what, what, what do they need to consider um, in, in terms of uh, their mindset uh, around how, how to utilize uh, forge bonding? What comes to mind to you? Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, revolves around uh, some of what we talked about earlier. That it's if they're faced with it, uh, having to shut down a tank, you know, take it out of service, and it's a, it's a you know a, a moderate to, to large tank. They're gonna that's when the value of forge tech kicks in. Or if they have say a tank wall that needs to be repaired and it's got a, a liner on it. And there's a lot of tanks that we come across that do have a liner. And sure, uh, if you if you are welding um, on the side of a tank three feet below the liquid level, um, it, it, it can be safe, but you'll likely burn the liner on the inside of the tank, and now you're right. going to you're just creating a future problem. So our our forge bonding process creates very little heat and has very um, little impact on the liner that's in that tank. So it's it's and then and then we install um, sensors uh, using using these uh, studs. Um, that uh, on piping, on like uh, high temperature piping, and these sensors are used for monitoring corrosion and erosion of the piping. So they can plan their next outages and find out if their processes are maybe out of balance or something. And so we can bond studs to those pipes without taking the heat treating out of it while the, while the pipes are in service. And I mean, some of these pipes are uh, 700 degrees Fahrenheit while we're working on them. And uh, right. it actually shortens our bonding cycle. We, we will actually characterize our bond based on the temperature of the base material because it's like it's like a preheat, and uh, right. the metal is already hot before we start bonding. So, uh, so that three second bond can come down to a second and a half if we're bonding on a six or seven hundred degree Fahrenheit pipe. So they, they've really got to think about you know the the whole value of uh, how this eliminates a bunch of different problems. It's not just about 
connecting a stud to whatever material. It's the value of being able to work on piping or work on tanks that they couldn't normally with any traditional method, or they've got to look at it from the point of view of how it could eliminate um, doing this kind of work during a shutdown in a process plant or um, having a shutdown and take an entire storage tank out of service. So there's the, the, the I, we often have these conversations with clients on, um, on wellless piping applications when depending on who you're talking to, they're comparing, you know, the cost of doing the welding versus the cost of the weldless piping connection. Uh, and you really got to have a, have a broader conversation on the whole value and what the cost is that you're all the costs that you're eliminating out of, out of that spend cycle, particularly all that, all the complications with hot work. That's exactly right. The, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's, the, oftentimes the greatest value is keeping the process line up and running. It's because right. uh, we get compared to welding all the time. Well, why don't you, you know, why don't you just weld the plate? Well, yeah, if you can weld it, we, I actually say you probably should because it's uh, because it takes us a lot longer to put a plate down than a welder can put a plate down. Right. If they can weld it and it doesn't have a whole bunch of other complications, then if that's a viable option, then it's, that's what they should do. Right. Exactly. Right. So, um, can studs be bonded to steel without taking the heat treatment out then? Uh, that's correct. Yes. And, uh, there is, uh, it's an extremely shallow heat affected zone. It doesn't penetrate the entire pipe, at least on the pipes that we've looked at. And we've had 30 third parties analyze our bond on uh, various uh, piping material. And, uh, there is some very sm uh, small amount of hardening that goes on right at the surface where the bond takes place, but it's minimal carbon steel. There's almost no hardening at all. And on, uh, like five and nine chrome, there's a small amount of hardening, but it's very shallow and, uh, it doesn't penetrate the entire pipe. Okay. You've been working on this for almost 10 years now, or yeah, 10, 10 years, um, going into your 10th year. What are the biggest obstacles you're facing with, uh, with selling this technology and getting client adoption? Right. It's, it's, it's getting them to step outside of their standard operating procedure. They're they're They have their way of doing things and they've been doing it. Um, forevermore uh, since the beginning. Um, the younger engineers tend to uh, adopt our technology and, and are more receptive to it than the ones that have been there for a while. I guess they're, they're a little more um, open-minded to the uh, new technologies. They grew up with them. Uh, most of us uh, grew up with <laughs> without much technology in our lives, and so it's sometimes a little bit more difficult to us to see the value of it, but uh, the, uh, the younger engineers uh, really love the uh, the forge bonding uh, technology because it brings something, gives them something new to work with. Yeah, the millennial generation tend to be, uh, you know, they tend to be innovators. They're looking, they grew up with technology, so they're always looking uh, for different, you know, my company's called Innovator, but I'm Generation X. And I, yeah, I, I grew up, I remember growing up uh, on refinery shutdowns where it was still hammer wrenches and the rattling of impacts. And, uh, uh, so there's a lot of changes happened in, in my last uh, 27 years. And, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, adoption of new technology uh, in our space is we're, you know, I think the industrial space tends to be a bit of a laggard in terms of adopting technology, but hopefully uh, the, 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 the younger technical types uh, are going to, you know, increase that, uh, increase that velocity and hopefully accelerate it. 
exactly. Yeah. You know, who, who do you typically need to get to, like, uh, with your clients? Like, at what level um, for, to create that sort of uh, that management of change thinking? Well, usually what we find is that it's a circle, it's an inner circle, um, and every company, every terminal works different, every refinery, every terminal, every chemical plant. Um, they, there's usually a group of people that have to all approve the technology. You've got safety, you've got inspection, engineering, and then management, maintenance. They all, they all need to approve it and buy in because um, most, of the, most of the managers who have the ultimate decision want buy-in from all of, their, all of the people that are involved. So it's usually, we call it an inner circle uh, that we need to get to. And in terminals or, or facilities that aren't heavily staffed, um, it might just be, it could be one person, but usually it's a couple. Uh, at a very dense uh, refinery, it, it might be a dozen people we have, to, um, we have to prove ourselves to. Are you often having to sort of uh, actually step outside of the terminal or the facility and get with the technical authority uh, back at their head office if they've got a, a technical authority engineering office uh, elsewhere? Do you, do you spend much time having to uh, uh, work with them uh, to, uh, to get them on board as well? That's a good question. Um, uh, some facilities operate uh, from top down. In other words, all the decisions on how they're going to make repairs, for example, are dictated out of a corporate office. Um, and so you do have to get to those people um, uh, in the corporate office who make those decisions. Um, and then others, they, they're allowed to work more autonomously uh, where they allow each facility and they might all, each one might do it differently. And then you have to go to each facility and sell them on the idea. So um, different uh, depending on the customer. So, but you're right. A lot of times you're going to corporate headquarters to, to have it. Yeah, we find with new technology, we kind of got to do both. We, we, we have to get some good, good buy-in and sponsorship with uh, a variety of technical stakeholders um, at the site level uh, who have some particular applications. And then there's generally a chief inspector and an, and an engineering support team back at head office who, who maybe own their operating standards, who either need to sanction this new approach, give it a deviation, and then maybe even eventually uh, adopt it and, and roll it into their new standard operating practices. And I, I think that's true for uh, larger companies that have multiple facilities that they do have a central uh, technical uh, team that uh, might, be the, uh, might be the owners of their standard operating practices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so on the installation side, um, you know, you're, you, you've, you've overcome those, um, those technical approvals. You've gotten people to understand the value. You're now in the field. You're executing that work. You know, what are the typical obstacles you're seeing during installation? Um, obstructions are probably the, the biggest uh, problem that we have to work around. Um, and actually, here's another one. Um, we're usually, or, or it's not uncommon for us to be um, a second or third attempt. Okay, so if we would have been the oh, first, yeah. attempt, we'd have a nice smooth surface to work on. But but by the time we get out, there's a top of a, a repair on top of a repair. Exactly. So now we're dealing with an, an, an ant hill with a polymers or uh, some kind of contraption, wooden plugs that they've hammered into the holes or or uh, screws with washers on them. And so now we're having to work over or around this, these things. And most of our customers and 
we're, we're not as, we're more comfortable with it. Most of our customers say, we don't want you to take off what's already there. You just need to fix it, you know, add another thing to it. So sometimes we're putting a much larger and more expensive enclosure over this, the, you know, what, what's already been done. We have some extreme examples of that, uh, that it's actually in our presentation. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing what we, we come across, but if we're the first ones out there, we can put a, a nice temporary leak stop in the hole just to, you know, that will allow us to work in a clean area. We'll put a flat plate over it. It'll be quick and easy. Um, and so we encourage our customers to call us on the first attempt rather than wait till they've made several attempts and spent a lot of money that, that didn't get them anywhere. I think it's no different than uh, a lot of on-stream leak repair where, you know, the maintenance team might try to put a rubber patch on it with some banding and then they get, you know, some sort of uh, plumber's clamp, like a rowbar clamp. And, and then that's what's, that's what's holding back some sort of a high pressure pinhole leak. But those clamps are not really stopping the leak. They're just diverting it everywhere. And, uh, and, and it might've been the good band aid for the, for the day or two, but it actually makes the more permanent repair a little more complicated and likely a lot more expensive because you now, instead of laying down a, a straight plate, you're probably building some sort of a top hat to go over top of other obstructions. Exactly. Right. So um, let's talk about certification. How, uh, you know, are stud, uh, sorry, forged bonded stud certified? Um, they're ASME uh, section unqualified. Um, so they, they do comply and they pass with flying colors. Um, as I mentioned, the, uh, the studs only need to handle eight, eight foot pounds of uh, torque and they, they, uh, they don't fail until 45 foot pounds. And the, bend and the bending, uh, actually that's what I was showing earlier here, the bending uh, is another test that you have to perform. So really the bend and torque is all you have to pass. It's fairly straightforward. If, you, um, if you're involved with, if, if, if our stud bonding is between um, uh, a, uh, materials that are not P1, uh, materials, I think P1 to P8, then uh, you have to do a, a microscopic examination by, by uh, cutting the stud in half and, and uh, looking at it under a microscope after etching it. And uh, so we do that when we start working with exotic metals. Uh, we just qualified an A20 uh, stainless steel stud onto a uh, 2205 duplex tank. And we performed a repair in the Houston area recently with that. So and, uh, and anytime we're thrown with a new material that we haven't qualified, we have to go through the qualification process, which uh, can take a uh, can take a week or, or two, if, if, uh, depending on on, uh, on availability of uh, engineers to work on it. Um, but but if it's if it's not carbon steel that we're working with, we have to perform this uh, cross section of the stud. Okay. <clears throat> now you you mentioned um, that you know all of your uh, repairs are engineered FEA. Uh, you're typically giving your clients an engineering package. So on the material side, be pretty standard on the plates and on the studs that you either do or can supply MTRs on the materials? Yes. Yes, that's usually yeah. the customer requests that we provide those with the engineering package. All right. So of all, all the materials have full traceability. Correct. And the SDS is for the, uh, uh, for the uh, polymers that we use in the gasket material. Right. Okay. Uh, what about uh, API standards? Uh, how does your solution uh, meet compliance with that? Well, API uh, 653 is typically what we fall under since this is a repair, that most of our work is a repair uh, or, or in uh, making a modification to a tank. Um, and actually, we are on API's agenda. Um, 
I presented at the um, the, the spring meeting um, uh, this past May, and so forged bonding is now on the um, API agenda for consideration to be put into the standard. And so there's a, a small uh, working group that's been assembled. Um, I believe there's six or seven people on it, and we're going to figure out where. In fact, I'm working on that right now. Figure out where in the standard it would best fit. And then we're going to come up with language and then have that uh, brought to the committee to, to figure out, you know, that that's the best place to put it. So, um, so we are working on uh, being included in the standard. Um, it was very well received uh, this last meeting. And so I'm, I'm excited about it that, that uh, we're going to be moving forward on it. Um, it's, uh, they said it takes, it's probably going to take a year or two, uh, well, actually more like a, a year to three years is what they're saying. They said, this one is more straightforward than some of the ones we've, we've included uh, recently, and they said it's probably two years is reasonable. Um, but as far as uh, compliance with API 653 right now, um, in, in the uh, front side of, uh, I think it's the second page or third page of API, there's a paragraph in there that discusses this, and that is that API uh, was designed so that you don't have to engineer everything you do to a tank. Um, and so if you follow the standard, you can avoid having to engineer it and it saves a lot of time and money and it becomes kind of standard practice. Um, right. However, it, it says that um, the standard is not intended to prevent you from doing other things. Uh, and as long as you use good engineering judgment that there's no reason you can't do other things to the tank. And so we fall into that category right now. Right. We engineer all of our well, research. It's much like on the ASME side where you've got the post-construction codes that give you guidelines and recommendations for repairs and modifications that are not uh, always explicitly uh, detailed. Exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, now, uh, just for the Canadian audience, uh, a couple of years ago, we worked with you and actually had your, um, your well procedure registered uh, here in Alberta with, uh, with uh, the Alberta Boiler Safety Association. So your, your WPS is actually registered uh, in Canada, is, is it not? That's correct, yes. All right. Um, why not wait? I'm sorry. Why not wait until the next turnaround? Uh, to install, you know, why shouldn't clients install, wait until the next turnaround to install uh, anchor points, fall protection, fire suppression systems? Like, wh what, why do it when it's on the fly, why, when it's running? Well, it's, it's all about taking that unit down. You know, that's, that's the, uh, so Forge Bonding allows our customers to upgrade their safety, to enhance safety for their employees, their, their workers, the, uh, the vendors that they bring in routinely to do work. They can upgrade it now without having to wait for the next turnaround or shutting down their process lines and spending the money, losing the opportunity there. Right. I know it's also, um, you know, the kinds of repairs that we would do with uh, forged bonding can often get on the turnaround exception list, uh, exceptions list when, when schedule or something, you know, when scope starts getting cut in the middle of a turnaround. So there's a risk that they put it on the turnaround list and it gets cut. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to put this stuff on the turnaround list. Right. And that's what was happening at that chemical company in the Houston area. Um, they right. were had made three attempts and it kept getting cut and they never, they actually weld, were able to weld a few uh, handrail brackets on, but that was it. And uh, they said, we can't, we're just never going to get this done. And they're, they're tired of waiting to improve safety for their, their workers. That's just the bottom line. 
Right. So, you know, we're a pipeline company, terminal company, uh, refinery, upgrader, chemical plant. I mean, all these large industrial facilities have some version of tankage and pressurized piping. Um, you know, how will this help them become more competitive? Um, well, certainly by, by saving, saving them uh, the expense of taking their process lines down, fewer interruptions. Um, that's, it's not uncommon for us to uh, receive notice that, that the uh, customer is on a 45-day uh, notice from EPA because they've got a leak and they've got 45 days to address it. And so it's fairly urgent, but that 45 days is, a fairly, is very comfortable for us to, um, to perform the engineering work if there's any that needs to be done for that particular job. And by the way, we do have standard repair plates. We've engineered them in the past. And so um, if we can reuse what we already have, then um, that's, that's good yeah. for everybody. Um, Allows you to scale and respond quickly with sort of standard templates because uh, you've got templates that match up with plates to allow for that standardization, right? That's exactly right. That eight and twelve volt uh, patterned plate is a, is our those are bread and butter, and uh, we put a lot of those down. Just standard. And you've got the you've got the jigs for the installation of those plates already uh, already prepared to match up with standard plate applications. That's that's correct, right? It's it's more than just designing the plate. There's actually the they is our primary means of securing our equipment to a tank roof. Let's take, for example, is a vacuum clamp. So we have a, a plate and, and it, 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 it gets pulled against the tank roof of the vacuum because we're applying a substantial force more than a couple of technicians can hold down. You know, they can't hold this machine against the tank roof. So um, it's, it's uh, in excess of a thousand pounds that we're, we're applying to that stud. So uh, we have a vacuum pump. I'm sorry. I remember playing around with it in your shop a few years ago, and I was impressed with the uh, the uh, the strength of your uh, your vacuum clamping system in, in terms of how much force it would take. It's a, it's quite an impressive design. Yeah, it's amazing how much force you can get out of a vacuum clamp. So, but we have to design that vacuum clamp for each plate or enclosure that we put down uh, because the there's a, a hole pattern that's predefined and, and uh, machined into that. Uh, vacuum clamp, and it's the locations where each stud's going to go. So the, the vacuum clamp's actually um, acting as the template for our stud pattern. Right. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a jig. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a jig. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned this uh, before, but uh, you know, clients have a liner inside of their tank that might be damaged if they weld on it. You know, but you can repair that uh, and not damage the liner. Just, just, just sort of talk about that a little bit in terms, and how are you accomplishing that and why? Um, well, if, if they, you know, the, the liner's there for a reason to, to limit the corrosion. Sometimes the uh, process in the tank is, uh, will, um, uh, will um, work its way from the inside of the tank out, and the, the liner's there to protect that. So if you weld on the tank, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy the liner, and now the product gets to the, the steel, and uh, it's going to... It's going to create it. It's not a defect right then, but um, sometime in the near future that, that can work its way through the tank and, and create a new defect. Um, so our, the, the amount of thermal energy, which by the way, on the backside of that, that plate you know, that, that I was showing you here, the backside here uh, is about 1.2 BTUs of thermal energy, very, very small amount of heat. Um, and it's, only, it's very short lived as well. Um, it's there for a few seconds. So um, the, uh, and, and on a, a tank wall tends to be thicker too. Um, you know, if they're at the bottom of a tank, you might be talking an inch thick. And uh, there's a, there's 
really no uh, significant heat that makes it through on, on a piece of steel that thick. Um, it's a tank roofs, which is what th this is actually uh, equivalent to a tank roof. It's a three inch thick, and that's, that's the thickness that we um, performed all of our backside temperature measurements on. Once you get thicker, the uh, temperature drops off dramatically, but on a three inch plate, um, the, uh, the, that thermal energy is uh, 1.2 BTUs, which by the way, that's the amount of thermal energy it takes to heat. One BT is the amount of thermal energy it takes to heat one cup of water by one degree Celsius. So it's a, really a very small amount of energy that's very produced. small amount of energy, absolutely. You couldn't make a cup of coffee with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could not make a cup of coffee. So, yeah, and so the, the liner stays intact and the product, the process in the tank doesn't, uh, doesn't attack the steel. You know, so, you know, just to kind of conclude our conversation, you know, I'm an owner of a facility, whether that's refinery, chemical, um, uh, storage terminal, uh, you know, what do you recommend in terms of when should they consider forged bonding? Um, it's if they're facing, uh, if they can't get a hot work permit and they're looking at taking their, their tank out of service or shutting their process line down, um, if they have a liner on the tank and they don't want to damage it with welding, um, those are, those are two uh, good examples. Um, and another, uh, good example, I, I'll, I'll kind of use a case study. We had a, a five foot uh, diameter condensate drum and you might say, well, five feet, I can just put a, a traditional leak sealing clamp around that. But it turns out on pressure vessels, uh, once in fact, I'll make two points here about pressure vessels, but, um, once that pressure vessel may have been made round, but uh, by the time it's been put into service and pressurized up, it's not round anymore. Uh, in fact, nothing we work on is round or flat. You know, tank roofs are not flat and the walls are not round. There's flat spots in them, there's humps in them. Uh, it's amazing how irregular the surfaces are that we work on and we, we adapt to those uh, surfaces. But um, so because that pressure vessel is not round, it's difficult. You, you would never be able to get, put a five foot clamp around that. Uh, not to mention that's gonna be probably prohibitively expensive and there's frequently obstacles in the way to, to installing a clamp that size. Um, and, and if you could get the clamp around it, it's, you're not going to get a good seal because the clamp is going to be machined round, but the, uh, the pressure vessel is not round anymore. The other thing is we, we talked to, uh, this is a, a little, little different uh, subject, but it relates to pressure vessels. And we spoke with a, a pressure, uh, a licensed, uh, uh, a licensed inspector for, for, uh, uh, for pressure vessels. And he said, forged bonding does not disrupt the pressure membrane. And therefore it would not void the R stamp on a pressure vessel. Um, so it's, that's another advantage. If you weld on a pressure vessel, you're going to avoid the R stamp. And, it, yeah. and an owner of that tank can do that if they want, but it's now it's at their own risk. Um, right. So that's another big advantage. That's a, I think that's a huge selling point that, uh, I mean, you, you know, pretty difficult to uh, get a client, an owner to, uh, to weld on a pressure vessel. Um, you know, and if they do, it's a pretty significant, uh, it tends to be a big, uh, a critical path project on a major turnaround where there's a, uh, there's, there's an awful lot of work to be done, including, you know, an army of heat treatment people to deal with the aftermath. Right. Um, great. Um, I think that about wraps it up, Matt. Do you have any, uh, kind of closing comments? Um, well, I, I think uh, I'm excited about this technology. Um, it's bringing tremendous value to the industry. And uh, we, we have uh, 
customers who routinely are high-fiving our technicians because we just saved them a half a million or $2 million from not having to take their tank out of service. So, um, and it's, we're gaining traction and uh, we, uh, yeah, we're just looking forward to, to, uh, to spreading this uh, on a, a much broader sales footprint. In fact, it's one, one reason we've started to license our technology recently is we're trying to uh, expand our market uh, quickly um, through our licensees. It's, uh, we're, we're located in Houston and uh, we're handling the Gulf Coast, but once we start to, to travel, it uh, becomes more difficult. So we're handing those, uh, those jobs off to our licensees. And we could have saved ourselves uh, an hour and a half if you just had told me, just tell customers they're going to high five us every time we save them a half a million to two million bucks. And yeah, let's wrap it up. Because <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, that's the, uh, you know, you know, the devil's in the details, but that's the real benefit is, is this technology safe? This technology is designed to eliminate a ton of things that cost money and downtime and lost production, ultimately safer, more cost effective and driving customer productivity, right? I mean, that's it, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of innovators, uh, goals around innovation, though, that, that's the trifecta that we look for. How do we improve our customer safety? How do we improve our customers' cost effectiveness? How do we improve their productivity? And I think forged bonding um, checks all those boxes in spades. It really does. It does. And uh, yeah, uh, and uh, we stand behind everything we do. So um, we look forward to uh, helping you push this out into the market in Canada. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, we're excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And, you know, we've, uh, we've recently had Mike up here and... Uh, a whole team of our technicians have now been certified uh, to your process. So we are ready to go uh, to bring this to customers in Canada. And, you know, and I guess this is the, uh, the inaugural announcement to uh, all of our clients uh, across the country that, you know, forge bonding is, uh, is available and, uh, and north of the 49th. And there you have it, though that doesn't have to be the end. If you haven't already, please give us a follow wherever you find your podcast, and don't forget to check out both our host, Don Cooper, and his company, Innovator, as well as our guest by following the links in the description.